Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome to church this morning. Uh, we are in the midst of our series on the Psalms, which is entitled Anatomy of the Soul. And what we're looking at is uh, basically how the Psalms describe nearly every facet that we can experience uh, of our emotions. So what's interesting about the Psalms in the way that they relate to us now is that our culture is sort of divided in terms of how we approach our emotions. On the one hand, there's a narrative that says, uh, your emotions are the core of who you are. They are the core of your being. So in order to truly know yourself, you need to get in touch with your emotions. So that leads to, you know, Facebook posts like follow your bliss uh, and probably tattoos that say follow your bliss. And uh, the second approach is one that says your emotions are actually not important at all. It's sort of a stoic detachment. And in order to live effectively, you need to distance yourself from your emotions and think purely rationally, have a total and complete trust in your own reason. So in our culture, we're told in either case to take one aspect of our humanity and demonize it and another aspect of our humanity and idolize it. But what we see in the Psalms is a wholehearted way of living that's described. It is living as complete humans with our spirits, in a sense, properly ordered, where our reason and our emotions inform each other so that we're able to live as wholehearted people in the world, not idolizing or demonizing aspects of ourselves. This is Thanksgiving week, so I decided to do a psalm on Thanksgiving. So this psalm is actually entitled... Uh, the title of the psalm itself is a psalm for giving thanks. That's the scriptural title of this psalm that we're looking at today, Psalm 100. Uh, thanksgiving and gratitude, that feeling of gratitude that comes along with giving thanks is what we're going to be focusing on. Gratitude is having sort of a moment right now. Uh, if you watch TED Talks or if you listen to people like uh, Tim Ferriss or if you just enjoy clickbait on how to improve your life, then you're probably going to encounter recommendations towards gratitude. What we know about gratitude right now is, it, it, is that it, it seems to really work. If you're wanting to cultivate happiness, then the way to do that is to cultivate gratitude. And our society is, it tends to be very pragmatic. And so we approach gratitude with, from sort of this pragmatic type of position, which is we do or try to cultivate gratitude because we think that it will work. It will <clears throat> function towards making us happier. Like an antidepressant, it is effective at shifting our minds and therefore will practice gratitude towards that same end. So 
Gratitude, we approach and we say gratitude is good because gratitude works. It really does work to make us happier. But I want to take us at sort of a different angle. If we can just sort of assume that that's true together, that gratitude works, it actually does work effectively to make us happier. The question that I want to pose is, is gratitude reasonable? Does gratitude actually make sense? If we were to survey our existence, would the appropriate response to that survey be gratitude? If we were to survey our lives, is the appropriate response gratitude? Or by cultivating that gratitude, are we actually cultivating some sort of a negligence of the harsh reality that we actually live in? So that's what we're looking at today. Is gratitude appropriate? When we look at the world that we live in, when we assess our own lives, is it appropriate to feel gratitude? Or are we merely simulating some sort of happiness because it works? It's an important question because if we are merely grateful because it works, then we could just be tricking ourselves. And our gratitude is something that is actually taking us further and further away from reality. I think uh, I went to school in Boulder, and I think Boulder is actually full of people like this, <laughs> uh, which are sort of, they're on Pearl Street. Uh, <clears throat> they look homeless. They're not. Um, and they're spending their days practicing and cultivating this sort of gratitude which is a gratitude for, you know, the, the beauty of the mountains and the breeze on their face and those sorts of things. And it seems to be a gratitude only towards the end of their own happiness. So the motivation of the gratitude is simply a cultivating happiness, and it seems to develop this internal retreat away from any sort of productivity and help for their uh, fellow person, any sort of contribution that actually benefits the rest of us, and yet it seems to be done in the name of gratitude. It, to me, that looks like gratitude not as getting you in touch with reality, but gratitude as a way of removing you from reality. That's not gratitude, that's just spin. Like, you're, you, you know, here's a fact of the world, and then you're spinning it uh, to make it something you can be grateful for. Another approach to gratitude is one that would force us, it seems, to ignore the deep and difficult questions of our lives. So that in order to cultivate gratitude, we need to sort of filter out some data that we're really receiving. This Thanksgiving, you'll probably sit around a table with a turkey with family, and um, I think it's a typical tradition to say, well, what are we all thankful for? And you ask each other, what are you thankful for? Um, so, sitting around with family, you'll go through that process. Uh, so, with that picture in your mind of sitting around with family, uh, it made me think of this uh, Jerry Seinfeld joke that he told. Does anybody, had anybody ever seen Comedians in Cars getting coffee? Yeah, that's a, you should check that out. It's like three of my favorite things. Um, and uh, he was with Seth Meyers, and Seth Meyers had recently had kids, and he was talking about, oh my gosh, I just feel this pressure 
of having children now, and it's just totally shifted my approach to the world. And he was uh, asking Jerry Seinfeld about, uh, he was like, what do you feel, you know, do you feel this pressure when you look around your kitchen table of like having kids and being responsible for these lives in the world? And uh, Jerry Seinfeld is a comedian, so he says something funny. Um, He says, you know, I look around the table and I think to myself, 80 years from now, all these people are dead. (laughs) So that's funny when Jerry Seinfeld says it. uh, And he, you know, intends it to be funny. Uh, But in order to cultivate gratitude, we have to come to terms with that fact as simply real. That's true. Even those great moments are totally fleeting. And if the end of all of his parenting simply ends with, they're all dead, it doesn't matter. Like if we take that seriously for a moment, if we sort of hear the sorrow beneath the laugh, we have to consider when we survey our existence, when we engage with the true deep questions of our lives, is it reasonable to then give thanks? Is it reasonable to experience gratitude? If gratitude is merely a trick that we can use to cultivate happiness, then what we're really cultivating is just a sort of cognitive dissonance. A, I know these things to really be true. I know, that it's, I know that the beginning of human existence was meaningless and random, and I know that it's going towards just a winking out. But in spite of it all actually being meaningless, I'm going to try and cultivate a gratitude. All we're doing is just cultivating a dissonance in our own thinking, an incompleteness. That's not gratitude, that's its negligence of reality. So, uh, we'll just continue to press the question. Is gratitude reasonable? Merriam-Webster defines thankfulness as being conscious of a benefit received. Being conscious of a benefit received. That's a different thing than conjuring a benefit received. That requires a being in touch with a real thing, a real thing that's outside of you, that you're conscious of receiving a benefit from. So, I want to press beyond merely the pragmatic benefits of gratitude and give us, sort of fill in our foundations together, where we can honestly say, when I survey the world, gratitude is actually the most reasonable response. When I survey the world accurately, gratitude is actually what makes sense. That is the picture that the Bible presents. Not gratitude is merely beneficial, but gratitude is reasonable. If you had all the facts laid before you, Gratitude would be the appropriate response. So, if we look at Psalm 100, it's a psalm for giving thanks. 
And that means we should expect to see a psalm that presents us with something that we can then be conscious of receiving a benefit from. And that consciousness of receiving that benefit, that is the thanksgiving, that is the gratitude. It materializes into that thanksgiving and gratitude. And what we'll look at is this psalm has a really interesting format where it it sort of takes place in um, a rhythm of a command followed by the reason for that command. And we see it happen in two instances. Verses 1 and 2 are a command to praise and to approach God as as a triumphant king. And then verse 3 is the reason for doing that. And we see that same pattern in verse 4, which is this command to approach God in praise. And then in verse 5, the reason for doing that. So what we're going to look at in this psalm is the command of gratitude and then the reason for gratitude. So let's begin. Uh, First, we're going to look at the commands together. So we're sort of taking the first part of the psalm and a middle section of the psalm. Psalm 100, verses 1 to 2, and then in verse 4, it says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And then in verse 4, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. So, as we can see, it begins with a command to praise the Lord, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Sort of the modern equivalent is everybody dance now. Um, Like in the song, everybody dance now. Um, Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Um, So, when you consider what could that mean, when do we make joyful noises? A couple of examples come to mind, like at football games, when things are going well, like we're all together, we make a joyful noise. Concerts, when we're wanting an encore, we're all together, we make a joyful noise. Uh, One thing I've noticed about my 10-month-old little boy is he does, uh, we did not have to teach him how to dance. That's built in, Um, which sort of means that we're taught to not dance, which is interesting. and we also didn't have to teach him how to clap uh, to, uh, to celebrate things. So uh, when I go to get him out of his car seat, he's like already doing this, like, yeah, out of the car seat, this is good. Um, and, uh, but that's a, a joyful noise, and we all still clap. And it's, it's weird, right? I mean, it's very, it's almost like very base and animalistic. It's like we see a good thing and we're like, nah. <laughs> it's, clapping is weird. Even after uh, church services, y- you clap. Like we're going to do an encore. <laughs> or something like, one more sermon. Um, but we make, we make joyful noises Uh, and we love to make joyful noises when we see things that we are delighting in. Uh, It's it's an innate compulsion. But what's strange about this is the joyful noise is is in a sense being commanded, saying, make a joyful noise to the Lord. And when you picture that, uh, when I picture making, being commanded to make a joyful noise to a king, it's not something, uh, it's not a positive image. I picture like Kim Jong-un walking in, and the applause just being over the top and insane. And 
uh, it seems terrible and oppressive. And it seems terrible and oppressive because it was commanded, right? Because it seems false. So then how can our joyful noise be genuine when we see it commanded like this? That's a question that uh, I'm going to defer to C.S. Lewis to answer. Um, he, uh, this was a real issue for him when he was approaching the Psalms, the fact that we're commanded to praise the Lord. And he considered what that looks like on a human scale when one human commands another to praise him and how horrible that often looks. So uh, he, the Psalms were an issue for him because of that. And he says this, he says, we all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. Thus, a picture at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and of his worshipers, threatened to appear in my mind. The Psalms were especially troublesome in this way. So he feels this deep sense of trouble because he's seeing us commanded to praise in the Psalms. Doesn't that rob them of their genuineness? So how do we have true praise if we are commanded? Well, one way out of that uh, dilemma is to say, well, we know that gratitude works. So really, God is just commanding us to be happy. He's commanding our happiness by cultivating a gratitude within us. And I think that that, that is sort of just adopting the pragmatism of our culture in many ways, because it's still requiring a disconnect between the benefit that you're conscious of and the gratitude that you're cultivating. Ultimately, what you're still pursuing is just your own happiness. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with that? I'll say it, I'll, I'll, I'll say it again. There's a disconnect between the object that we would be conscious of, conscious of receiving a benefit from, and our gratitude. Our gratitude is motivated by the command and our desire for our own happiness. It's not motivated as a joyful response to something, to a benefit that we're then conscious of. So our gratitude is still, in a sense, this cognitive dissonance. It's incomplete. Gratitude is still just a tool that we're using to cultivate our own happiness and justify a disingenuous response to a command. So we're still in the riddle then. That one doesn't really pull us out. Lewis, anticipating that, doesn't go down that road. Instead, he uh, considers what makes something praiseworthy. He considers what, what makes certain art praiseworthy and other art not praiseworthy. He uses the word admirable. He's, what makes some art admirable and other art not admirable? And he thinks it can't simply be that the art is admired that makes it admirable, because there's plenty of art that is admired that isn't admirable. Uh, it, uh, like a lot of art just <laughs> flew through my mind. A lot of Christian movie titles just flew through my mind. Of art that is admired that isn't admirable. So 
Then he considers what is it, what is this innate quality in certain pieces of art, certain artwork that makes it admirable? And he then considers that certain objects, this gets, this gets sort of subtle, so stick with me, certain objects have this quality of admirableness that simply inheres in them. Because, <laughs> I wish there were better ways to say this. Have you seen that video of the guy who goes and explores nature and he says, you can tell it's an aspen tree because of the way that it is. <laughs> That's kind of what this sentence feels like. You can tell it's admirable because of the way that it is. But if we step back and we see that there's a quality that certain art has, that to not admire it is to be disconnected from reality. It's to be disconnected from the way things most fundamentally are. So that to not admire it is to just be seeing wrong. Because when you see it, you must admire it. You must celebrate it. You must praise it. Lewis, thinking in those terms, then applies that same framework to God. And he says, he is that object to admire which, or if you like, to appreciate which, is simply to be awake, to have entered the real world. Not to appreciate which, is to have lost the greatest experience and in the end, to have lost all. The incomplete and crippled lives of those who are tone deaf, have never been in love, never known true friendship, never cared for a good book, never enjoyed the feel of the morning air on their cheeks, never, I'm one of these, enjoyed football. That's, that was Lewis. So he means soccer. So I don't blame him. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, so the incomplete and crippled lives, such as those, they are faint images of it. They are faint images of the person who can behold God and not respond in praise, not respond in thanksgiving, not respond in gratitude. God is the object which to appreciate is simply to be awake. It's simply to see the world as it is. He is that type of thing. So if you're beholding God and not appreciating him, the problem is not with God. If you have a map and it, takes, and it doesn't line up with a place on the earth, the map is wrong. The earth is not wrong. Uh, another worse example. <laughs> uh, have you seen the, the like, Food Inc. and Supersize Me when like, the only way to get a documentary funded was to slam McDonald's? in the late 2000s. Uh, 
they take you into those labs where they're like working on the flavors for Big Macs and things, uh, and like all the chemicals and stuff and research that goes into that. Uh oh, McDonald's heard me. <laughs> um, uh, and it's like all the research that goes into getting these flavors dialed in just right. I remember watching those and thinking, so that means that if you try a Big Mac and you don't like it, you're wrong. <laughs> Because they've spent millions of dollars on, of research figuring out, like, yeah, this is what humans like. It tastes like this. Um, that's a terrible example. Uh, But it's the, it, the principle is the same. It, it is that when you behold God, to not appreciate Him only diagnoses a wrong that's in you. It is to see the real world. The psalm being a psalm for, for Thanksgiving means it is not only a command to give thanks. Well, let me tie this together real quick. So how does that resolve the command? We're commanded to give thanks in the same way that we're commanded to see the world as it is. This command brings you in line with reality. It doesn't take you away from it. This isn't calling you, this isn't calling you towards a gratitude that forces you to pretend the world is different than it is. It's forcing you to see the world in the most fundamental aspect of existence which is that it is God's creation as it is. It's bringing you deeper into reality. That's why the command can be a command for gratitude and be genuine gratitude. So as we continue on, we'll move now into the sections of the psalm that provide the reasons for the command, the reasons for gratitude. Psalm, uh, in verses 3 and Five says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And then in verse five, it says, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So verse three begins as uh, following the commands of verse one and two. And it says, tells you what to know. What are you knowing? What are you being conscious of that is, sport, that is supposed to co cultivate this sort of true gratitude? What benefit are you being conscious of? And the first thing that it says is know that the Lord, he is God. Know that the Lord, he is God. This is actually typical language throughout Scripture. Like in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, a faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love for those who love him and keep his commandments for a thousand generations. This is a typical description of God. And it presses us into a couple of questions. I think uh, for the reading audience, it might have meant something like, this God, the God of uh, Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, the, the, the God who made a covenant with us as his people, He is not some tribal deity. He is not some, uh, he is not some God that is just for us. This Lord who has made this covenant with us is God. He is over all things. He is complete and all things are his. So know that this Lord is God. 
And it also presses, in, presses us in to consider what do we mean when we say God, which is probably a good book title. And it, what do we mean when we say God? It exposes where we typically go, which is, uh, are we thinking of just a very strong man? Are we thinking of like a, like a type of Superman? who just uses his power over us to cultivate some sort of praise? Is that how we're functionally thinking of God? Because if so, that does develop a lot of problems. But if the Lord is God, as the Bible describes, then he is completely other than us. He is not merely us magnified. And that thought continues with this verse, as he says, Uh, It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. See, that's teaching us how it is that we ourselves relate to God. We are creatures relating to our creator. We relate to God not like a weak person relates to a strong person. We relate to God the way that clay relates to its potter. To continue with C.S. Lewis, we relate to God not the way that a person on the first floor relates to a person on the third floor, but the way that Hamlet relates to Shakespeare. We relate to God as totally dependent creatures. So that uh, this debunks the way that we often approach him. This means that If you have any existence, then you ought to have some sort of gratitude towards God. It says, uh, it is he who made us, we are his, we are his people. An alternate translation of we are his people is in not we ourselves, which means that it is saying it is he who made us, we are his, and not we ourselves. It is not we ourselves that made us. We were made. Consider that. If you, feel, if you feel a sort of sinking feeling, that's probably right. If you look down and you see that this foundation that you thought was there isn't there, and you're just hanging on God's whim, then you're right. You're starting to see things more clearly. Which means that the way we approach our very existence can only be based in gratitude, not in a sort of responsibility, not in a sort of justice. You did not earn your existence. It was given to you. The appropriate response when you survey data like that is gratitude. And as it continues on, it it becomes more glorious as it becomes more personal. It says, we are the sheep of his pasture. So it enters this metaphor of how it is that we really relate to God. What does that relationship look like? And it's we are the sheep of his pasture, making God like a shepherd, which means that it, all that we need, it, it's him who provides it. The direction of our lives is not decided by the sheep, it's decided by the shepherd. The protection that they're afforded is provided by the shepherd. The, the whack to get back in line, 
that they need is provided by the shepherd. And it continues on. In verse 5, it says, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. The good news of Christianity is beholding that God who made us is not like the God of textbooks that can be reduced to three principles, omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent, everywhere, and omniscient, all-knowing. That's all it takes to define God in a textbook sense. So if we just have that, then our picture of God, you can do all sorts of mental gymnastics with, you can write out on a board and disprove the existence of. But the God of the Bible transcends those mere characteristics. He's irreducible. The good news is that uh, the Lord is all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, and good. His steadfast love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. The goodness of God is equal parts good news and horrifying when we understand who we really are. When we understand the corruption that sin and our sin creates in our hearts, it means that the goodness of God ought to mean justice for us. And justice for us ought to mean a distance from God. Even a rejection of ourselves from God. But the psalmist continues and says, His steadfast love endures forever, His faithfulness to all generations. Which means that in some way, even amidst God's goodness, even amidst our sin, God's steadfast love was able to be applied to his people, was able to endure forever. And we saw this in a more complete way than even the psalmist knows at this point. We see the steadfast love of the Lord we see the goodness of the Lord demand a justice be paid. We see that justice paid by Jesus on the cross for his people. We see the steadfast love of the Lord endure even to the point of death on a cross. We see it clearly demonstrated. This characteristic of the Lord made manifest in history. So that when we survey reality as it is, and we survey the character of God as it is, this most fundamental aspect of reality, the reasonable response, the reasonable response, at least as Christians, is gratitude, total gratitude. When we look at the gospel in that way, we aren't distancing ourselves from reality by being grateful 
We're seeing it as it is. The corruption and the sin in the world, even in ourselves, in Christ does not have the final say. And even this psalm is operating in a sense prophetically with that very first verse, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. That hasn't happened yet. But that's something that we're looking forward to. That one day Jesus will return and rule as a very present king that we'll make a joyful noise for and celebrate. And the sin in the world will be condemned and put away and only righteousness will flourish. And in that, we will be able to see that it was all the work of Christ and have a total gratitude for it. So, the way that Lewis describes that is the way that John Donne described it. He says, Meanwhile, of course, we are merely, as Donne says, timing our instruments. That's what the book said. I, I don't know if timing instruments is an expression that John Donne used or if it was a misprint, but... The tuning up of the orchestra can be itself delightful, but only to those who can, in some measure, however little, anticipate the symphony. See, our gratitude is extremely resilient. Our gratitude allows us to look at the incredible difficulties that you are in the midst of right now and still be able to have a gratitude that is reasonable, one that isn't negligent when it allows you to look at the, the decay that you see and the broken relationships and the broken work relationships and the uh, financial difficulties and the, the things that you're facing, and still amidst those, be able to cultivate a true, reasonable gratitude. Because all that you have is a gift. The one who's holding it all together is good. And the best is yet to come. So, this Thanksgiving, I want us to approach uh, not with simply a, a, a pragmatic approach to gratitude, but one that is, that is firmly based in reality, where we can survey reality as it is, not ignoring the big questions of our lives, but moving into those questions in order to see that reality is the appropriate, excuse me, Gratitude is the appropriate response. The good news is, (laughs) gratitude does work. So hopefully that'll kick it into overdrive. All right, let's take some questions. How am I meant to feel true gratitude during a trial of doubt and hardships, especially when it feels difficult to see anything for which I am actually grateful at that time? So, With this idea that gratitude is a pushing into reality as it is, the question then becomes, how are you filtering reality? Through what lens are you looking at it through? And that's sort of the question that we've been dealing with this entire sermon, which is, how, how can we cultivate a gratitude that allows us to take in the world truly as it is uh, and yet still be grateful for it? 
And Christianity provides sort of the mental furniture in order to make that happen. Because we see that the story that we're in is one of redemption, which means that the broken things can be repaired. In fact, the broken things will be repaired. And so our gratitude in the present, I think, can oftentimes feel like a hope. A hope that things will be redeemed, a hope that things will be different. But there's another side of this, which is that the command to gratitude is real. Part of what C.S. Lewis talks about in this essay is there's a sense of gratitude which is our duty, which means it needs to be a practice that we're cultivating. Just like the map that doesn't line up with the world, if the map doesn't line up, it's not the world that's wrong, it's the map. That's true for us ourselves. And so we need to do the work to make those corrections, to start filtering the world appropriately so that we might live in that place of gratitude. So, in a word, uh, and in a word that may sound harsh, considering I don't know the trials that you're in, whoever you are, (laughs) uh, practice. I desire gratitude, thankfulness, etc. Yeah, all that stuff. Yet feel at times like the worries of day-to-day life have locked me in chains, which further increases a sense of dull sadness and leads me even further away from true gratitude. What is a responsible Christian to do in that space? I think, so what, the way that Merriam-Webster defined gratitude is almost like a lesson in how to do it, and it's Uh, to be conscious of a benefit received. Uh, um, Paul in Philippians 4 uh, says a list of things that I don't have memorized. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is excellent, whatever is good, if there is anything that is good, (laughs) something like that. Um, Think about such things. Which means that... uh, Paul has this view of our minds that a lot of us don't have, which is that they are ours and they can do our bidding for us. Uh, We are actually in control of our thoughts. So if you combine those two ideas, we can make ourselves conscious of benefits that we've received. So are you scanning the world to see those? Do you have practices in place to actually make that a part of your worldview, of your mental framework? What I hope this sermon allows you to do is to see scanning for those benefits that you've received is not making you more naive. It's making you more accurately informed of the world as it is. I think we have a tendency to think that cultivating this real gratitude is just taking me away from these you know, these issues that I should really be focusing on, and it's making me just more naive. But I I don't think that's the case. To practice being conscious of the benefits that we've received is bringing us more in line with the world as it is and cultivating that gratitude. Um, Man, that was practice for the second answer in a row. (laughs)
Most of today's discussion presupposes a belief in God. How do we have this discussion about cultivating genuine, genuine gratefulness with someone who may not believe in God? Yeah, great question. What I hope the conversation would lead to is a, a sort of tipping point moment where we've finally gotten to the bottom of what our gratitude could be based in. And then we have to sort of make a decision. Is my gratitude go going to be based in a sort of cognitive dissonance, which says that there, there is no meaning to the beginning and there's no meaning to the end, but I'll ignore those facts and just try and make meaning in the middle. Or is it possible that the reason the concept of God resolves that tension in ourselves because he's, is because he's real and because he made us to have that tension resolved only in himself. Talking, uh, I mean, you don't have to be a Christian to be grateful, obviously. But we do need to take our gratefulness seriously and consider, can we ultimately be grateful? And in the midst of my worldview, is gratitude the reasonable response? Or is it just a helpful trick to get through the day? that I can tag along with all sorts of other life hacks? That's the question. So, it, how to talk about it? Be grateful with non-Christians. Help your non-Christian friends cultivate more gratitude. That's a good thing. It's a work of the Spirit in the world. But take their gratitude seriously. Help them take their beliefs seriously. Uh, that they might discover a way that their gratitude, instead of developing an incoherence in themselves, because it could actually be bringing a coherence. So that would be my advice. And pray a lot. All right. We can start now with the praying a lot. We're about to take communion. Uh, communion is bringing us uh, sort of physically, <laughs> bringing to our physical remembrance even, uh, Jesus' broken body and spilled blood that was poured out that we might be saved. That Christians might have a unstoppable gratitude. So let's remember that. Just like Psalm 100 allows us to behold God in an amazing um, economy of words. Uh, Take this time to be conscious of God's benefits towards you. As a Christian, they're innumerable. Our communion is open, which means you don't need to be a member of our church to take it. However, it is a public testimony of your faith in Christ and of your union with him and of the gratitude that you can have because of that. Therefore, if you're not a Christian, um, we'd ask that you would abstain. Um, and 
imagine you'd want to anyway, because it would be a false testimony. So with that, let's pray. Father, help us to behold you and survey you accurately, that we might cultivate a gratitude that truly brings us in line with reality, that develops a resilience in ourselves, a hopefulness in ourselves, and a joy that is contagious. Father, thank you that gratitude does work. (laughs) That gratitude seems to, in a sense, make us happy. But Father, beyond that, we thank you and we praise you for who you are, who you've revealed yourself to be. The most important aspect of existence is, is you and that you are good Your steadfast love endures forever. Your faithfulness to all generations. Let us behold that and be conscious of your benefits towards us. Father, I lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.